Hi folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. This week's episode is different. We'll explore forces that move all of us. Water, it's, it's going to be probably the biggest uh, problem in the world in, in, the, in the decades to come. And where is the majority of our current fresh water supply stored? In glaciers. Glaciers that are melting fast. week's episode, we will be talking about the world's melting glaciers and the creative solutions people are finding to mitigate the effects of climate change. In preparing for this final episode, can you believe it's already the last episode in the series? So in preparation, I had lots of thoughts and questions I wanted to walk you guys through. It's really hard to make something that feels so far away, tangible and real. How do we make disasters that are slow moving, long in the making, you know, disasters that might not even fully come to fruition in our lifetime, seem important and relevant? Especially in a world that already hyper-sensationalizes every new stormy weather watch. And for me, as a storyteller, how can I turn these types of distant emergencies and slow violence into stories dramatic enough to rouse public attention to demand political intervention. And beyond just me and this podcast even, there's the question of displacement and the people whose lives are in danger because of these slow onset disasters. Should people affected by climate change count as refugees and receive international aid? That is up for you to decide. Glaciers represent the snows of centuries, compressed over time into slowly flowing rivers of ice, thousands of feet thick. Presently, 10% of the land area on Earth is covered with glacial ice, including glaciers, ice caps, and the ice sheets of Greenland and Antarctica. Glaciers are never static. They accumulate snow in winter and lose ice due to melting temperatures in the summer. But with a warming global climate, our glaciers are melting faster than we can ever gain back their snow. Glaciers currently store about 69% of the world's fresh water, and they have never melted this fast before. There are roughly 400,000 glaciers, ice caps, and glacierettes in the world. Glaciers are like humans. They are all different. So you could have two adjacent peaks that are actually melting at different rates, which is pretty crazy. So this melting, as we all know, contributes to sea level rise, catastrophic flooding, alterations in river flow and ecosystems, 
affecting the organisms that inhabit them. But enough of the depressing facts. Okay, the first person I had the opportunity to talk with is a fellow National Geographic explorer. Since I was in Ecuador and she was off scaling glaciers, we had to do the interview over the phone. So if you hear any strange sounds, this is probably why. Okay, we are on. So could you tell me your name and your job title? My name is M. Jackson and I'm a geographer, a glaciologist, and an explorer for the National Geographic Society. Wonderful, and let's just dive right in. Why do you think we should care about glacier melt? Part of living on this planet is living with ice. And if we wanna understand what living on this planet is, what the future might hold, what, what it was like in the past, we can actually turn to the ice because our glaciers are our libraries. They hold records of what the atmosphere was like yesterday, what the atmosphere was like a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, a million years ago. The actual air we breathe every day, does that air have a lot of pollen in it? Is that air hot? Is it cold? Is it uh, full of sediments? That record is recorded each day by glaciers. What plants were on this planet? Uh, what animals? All of that is recorded. It's the glaciers are our ultimate internet and they're melting quicker than we can access them. And so imagine if you could not, if you woke up tomorrow morning and could not Google anything, you would have all of that knowledge at your fingertips because the internet was broken. And so this whole business of living on this planet, all that information that could tell us and teach us, it's dissolving before our eyes. What do you do with that? It's really difficult. So what does this mean for Ecuador? Well, for Ecuador's small geographical size, it has an impressive number of glaciers. In total, there are seven, some of which include Chimborazo, Cayembe, the Elanisas, and Cotopaxi. I wanted to talk to a glacier expert who has been able to see the changes in the glaciers over the decades. Here is the audio of my call with him. Hello, can I speak to Mark Gunslagen, please? Yeah, hold on one second. I'll transfer you over. Yeah, my name is Mark Gunlogson. I work at Mount Madness. I'm actually the company owner there. And Mount Madness is a guide service. We operate trips all over the globe, uh, including Ecuador. We've been uh, working there for uh, running trips there for probably uh, 20 years or more. It's been, a, been an interesting uh, evolution and, and change that we've seen there. Mountain Madness became famous after the Into Thin Air story, which is a book and now a movie as well, if you want to check it out, which chronicles the 1996 Everest climb, where a lot of climbers died after being trapped by a storm. The two previous owners of the company also died in glacier ascents. Now, despite all of this, it hasn't deterred Mark from climbing. I actually first guided in Ecuador 
uh, in the late 80s, uh, it was about 88. And so um, that's actually, you know, almost 30 years ago. Actually, it's more than 30 years ago. So, so yeah, we've seen um, changes there with the glaciers that, you know, we've seen changes locally here near, near Seattle. So it's happening not only uh, in the equatorial regions, but also in um, temperate, no more northern and southern latitudes. So, so it's a common theme that we're seeing, uh, uh, especially for uh, people that have been going into the mountains for, for decades. It, there's visible changes. Equatorial glaciers, or glaciers along the equator, are currently at the highest risk of disappearing in the world. For example, between 1976 and 1997, Cotopaxi lost 0.33 kilometers of ice. This is enough water to fill 132,000 Olympic swimming pools. Other glaciers in Ecuador, like that of Chimborazo and Eleniza, have both gone from a level 10 glacier 30 years ago to now a level 3 in terms of ice mass. So those ones are actually going to be um, disappearing potentially in our lifetimes if they haven't already. I decided to get in touch with one of Mountain Madness's employees who is currently living in Ecuador to hear firsthand how the glaciers are changing from someone who is climbing them every day. Me llamo Osvaldo Freire. Eh, trabajo para una compañía que se llama Mountain Madness, que está... My name is Oswaldo Ferreira. I work for Mountain Madness, which is based out of Seattle. I'm your guiding coordinator for South America. I've been coordinator for South America for five years now and worked with them for over 20 years. The first thing I asked him was, how many glaciers had he climbed? Muchas veces. He estado en la cumbre del Everest tres veces. He subido cuatro de los 14,000. Okay, so let's see. I've been to the summit of Mount Everest three times. I've climbed four of the 14 8,000-foot glaciers, or actually, it's more like six or seven of those. I've climbed almost all of the important mountains of South America that we work with. Ten years ago, I stopped counting how many times I've summited the Cotopaxi Glacier in Ecuador, but it's got to be close to 300 times. So yeah, it's been a lot. Yep, so that's impressive. Ozzy also told me that guiding people through the glaciers is becoming increasingly challenging. So as the glaciers melt, climbing routes need to change. Loose pieces of rock begin to fall off, and changes in weather patterns can bring unpredicted storms. Los patrones de clima han cambiado mucho, mucho, mucho. Las temporadas de escalar aquí, para darte un ejemplo muy claro, eh, here in Ecuador, the weather patterns have changed a lot. To give you a clear example, 10 years ago, during the whole month of June, you had perfect weather for climbing. You would have maybe only one or two bad days a month where you wouldn't be able to climb. Just now, I was with a group during the month of June, and out of 16 days, we had two good days on the mountain. Because in the valleys, where most people live, you don't notice the weather changes as much. In the mountains, wind patterns have stayed the same. There has always been a lot of wind, but now the humidity has risen. The entire yearly weather cycle has shifted, and now in June we are having the weather we used to have in April. Those are pretty drastic changes. And for generations, the Ecuadorian glaciers have fulfilled a crucial function in the local water supply system. For example, in dry seasons, the meltwater from the glaciers feeds the high-altitude ecosystems and rivers, 
that sustain the livelihoods of people living in and around the glaciers. Meltwater that did not go directly into river systems usually drains into the Paramo, or high-altitude grasslands, that are crucial in regulating water sources in the Andes, and increasingly important for the 50% of Ecuadorians that live in that region. I was curious to ask Ozzy how the melting glaciers have affected the communities that surround them. Lo que pasa es que la gente que se ve afectada por el, por el agua y eso no, no, no tienen mucha noción en la montaña. Ellos no están afectados. En efecto, ¿qué está pasando ahora con, con la gente que está en, en las faldas de, de las montañas? Ellos tienen más agua. Porque el glaciar está perdiendo... What is happening now, basically, is that people who are on the slopes of the mountain, they are not affected. They have more water now. The glaciers are losing ice and snow in greater proportion, creating more water. So when you try to talk to people and explain the problem, they just say, what are you talking about? Now we have more water than we had 15 years ago. But they don't realize that the reserve is depleting. They won't be able to recover this water. Also, cities are capturing greater amounts of waters from the communal reserves, since these mountain communities are not being affected now. But the moment the water level drops, the city will not stop capturing this water. The people who are going to lose water are going to be the people of the small village communities. It's going to impact people whether they want to step on a glacier and experience it or they don't care, but ultimately it's going to impact uh, every person uh, as the water issue in Ecuador um, becomes more crucial and difficult to, to manage. The global number of people displaced by slow onset disasters remains unknown. The relative invisibility of slow violence makes recording displacement that much more challenging. And without accurate statistics, it makes it that much harder for people to mobilize and act decisively. The issue of causality becomes even more complicated and challenging when it comes to climate change displacement. You know, seriously, like, who is to blame for the melting of Ecuadorian glaciers? You know, I mean, we could point to an overly consumptive and waste-producing economy or extractive industries as culprits. However, these are all difficult to hold accountable for the impacts on a wide range of local economies. To go even further down the rabbit hole, climate change in itself does not directly displace people. Rather, climate change may produce environmental effects, which make it difficult for people to survive in their current location. Things like natural disasters, rising sea levels, and slow onset disasters, these last two both having to do with glacier melt, can lead to desertification and other changes in weather patterns, making people's livelihoods no longer sustainable and forcing individuals to migrate to other places. As Pablo Bose, a University of Vermont professor and prominent scholar on the subject, points out, the relationship between environmental change, poverty, population growth, and displacement is a complex one. People make decisions over time to leave their communities for a complex interplay of reasons. And it's difficult, actually so far impossible, to single out the impact of the environmental effects of climate change 
on these decisions. Many situations commonly considered as environmental displacement should more accurately be considered as the impact of development. So, where do we go from here? I keep thinking to myself, we know how glacier ice is made. We know what we need. And today we have a very clear idea of what the problems are. And I can't help but feel a lot of hope that we're going to be able to get ahead of some of these problems. And if we do, that means our ice has the ability to grow back. Mm. Now, I say that with the very big caveat that our ice can grow back. And that's what I work to do every day is to understand and protect our world's glaciers. But our ice is not going to grow back in my lifetime. And it's not going to grow back in yours. And it's not going to grow back in our children's lifetime. But that time scale, which is my time scale, right? The one I'm privileging because it's my life. That doesn't need to be the only time scale. Just because I'll never see the results of my labor and what I fight for does not mean that my work is any less important. I think our planet is a better place with ice. So, what are the most viable solutions to glacier melt? Well, one of the things that working on glaciers really pushes you to kind of rethink is this idea, this false binary of problem and solution. The problem, glaciers are melting, the solution do X. And glaciers don't work that way. Uh, they, they challenge you to live differently on this planet. So when I look at solutions, because I've always asked about solutions, I'm not going to tell you Icelanders have chosen to do X specific solution today. But what I do see is habits of behavior. And I see people having to work together and figuring out how to navigate a very dynamic landscape. They're also continuing to have conversations about what is causing this massive change. Because within those conversations, you start to think. And when you start to think, you start to follow that behavior change and vote change and worldview change, which is where we can start enacting other potential ways forward. There is going to be no single solution for ongoing climatic changes, but there's going to be a host of many different lived solutions in all of these local environments. With M's words in mind, I tried to find a few examples of local solutions that are having a big impact in the surrounding environment. From my research, it seems like disruption to agriculture and the irrigation systems supporting it is an area where local people are going to start feeling the worst effects right away. I read somewhere that declining water supplies from glaciers do not actually necessarily need to be a problem. Rather, it's a question of how we use the water. And how we use the water is determined by society. You know, that's like, that's probably the first place to look at things is, is uh, you know, who, who's using the water and what's their access. Y un problema que tenemos aquí es que nosotros como, como ecuatorianos, como cultura, 
y eso no solo es en Ecuador, sino un poco Latinoamérica, perdemos mucha agua por contaminación. The problem we have here in Ecuador is a cultural issue, and not just in Ecuador, but in all of Latin America in general. We lose a lot of water due to pollution, all our rivers are contaminated, so it's not just an issue of glacier melt, but also of how we use and value our existing water supply. These sorts of complicated water issues are not just a dynamic happening in Latin America. It's playing out right here in the U.S. as well. In Washington state, for example, the state with the largest area of glaciers in the contiguous United States, melting glaciers provide 470 billion gallons of water each summer. Actually, in Washington, um, we had the Columbia River, and, and that became heavily dammed, and that sort of altered the fish migration upriver and whatnot. But they also came up with some really good use of uh, the water resource for, for farming in the region. So there are ways to create efficient irrigation systems, storing water so that there's a fresh water supply for drinking. Uh, it's just a matter, again, of, of people working together to, to find the solutions. Mark actually showed me another interesting and very creative solution that people are using on the other side of the world, in Kashmir, India. There, in the high mountain ranges of Central Asia, in the community of Tian Shan, the supply of water from glacier melt has grown erratic. Sometimes there's too much, producing flash flooding that destroys crop fields, but often there's too little. So, what was the solution? Get this. Giant igloos, or ice stupas as they call them, that essentially collect glacier melt water and refreeze it at the base of mountains. So, to make an ice stupa, run a tube from a melting glacier downhill to a central location. Force it through a sprinkler system and spray the water so it refreezes over a domed form. And presto! you have the ultimate ice storage igloo and a neat tourist attraction. Construct it on top of a stream bed and it will augment the communal water supply for months. A 50-foot ice stupa, which can be created in just a few weeks, stores more than a quarter of a million gallons of water. The whole concept for these ice stupas was created by an engineer named Sonnum Wangchuk. There is a fantastic New Yorker article about ice stupas that I'll put on my show notes and post on my website. So look out for that. Sort of, it really is kind of a creative way to store water, but it's also, uh, it's kind of like art, you know, it's like a really <laughs> pretty cool yeah. formation. But I think um, it serves a lot of purposes. Crises, and that's when kind of one of those things where become... Uh, the most creative and I think that's kind of an example of that because I you know you can store a lot of water uh, in, in something like that. Now I'm not saying that we should all start building ice stupas all over the world. It's not the be-all end-all solution to climate change. But maybe this type of wacky innovation can inspire other people in other parts of the world to think about what types of innovations could work in their area.
other scientists are saying that the best way to save glaciers may be to tackle the problem at its source. Out in the polar oceans, one of the biggest threats to glacier melt is warming ocean waters that corrode at the base of glaciers, eventually breaking off large chunks of ice. How could you, you know, protect glaciers from this warming seawater? Here's a situation where building a wall <laughs> might actually work. The basic gist is that the large walls could be constructed on the ocean floor at the base of glaciers, creating a blockade preventing warm water from melting the ice. But would such walls really stop the ice from melting? Well, computer simulations predict it would. For example, simulations have shown that such walls could enable Antarctic ice to last another 400 centuries. Sounds pretty good to me. As one scientist put it, we could either be building walls on our coastlines and relocating families, or tackle this issue at its source by building walls to protect glaciers from melting. What we need to make glaciers is actually pretty simple. Just cold temperatures, snow, and most importantly, time. I couldn't help but wonder though, isn't this solution just buying us a little bit more time instead of tackling the root issues? You know, shouldn't we be focusing on trying to lower the amount of greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere? And what about adjusting our relationship to the natural world from one of consumption to one of cohabitation? O sea, el agua es un derecho. Y aquí en Ecuador se le trata como una posesión. O sea, todo el agua es del gobierno. Water is a human right. Yet here in Ecuador it's treated as a possession. All of our water is owned by the government. They treat water as if it were oil or as if it were gold or things like that, where you would have to pay for the right if you want to use the water. When in reality, water should be a right like education, like freedom, and things like that. Water should have rights and should be a right for everyone. You know, governments certainly have a, a hand in, in it, and I think they just need to, uh, you know, understand how it impacts people down to you know, the people that have huge agribusiness and they have no water issues because they have the money, but also they need to understand how it's going to impact the, the small farmer uh, whose, whose water source is all of a sudden dried up. And I think uh, there's, a, there's a lot of pieces to it. And uh, I think, that, you know, again, education uh, and, and how you have people understand it, that's, that's, that's the challenge. And I think once people begin to have some of those realizations, I think there, there can be some change made. I think it's inevitable that very soon we will have to start thinking about water differently. From how many times a day we flush the toilet, to how it is distributed across the U.S. And the good thing is, we can adapt. With new government policies, and communities altering their priorities and working together, there are real solutions to be found. I hope that the climate change stories shared in this podcast have helped to paint a picture of global issues whose impacts need to be understood as uniquely local. We need to be thinking of solutions at all levels. No one global solution is going to fit each case. In each episode of Forces That Move Us, we've met individuals who are confronted 
by impossible forces and were moved to make a difference with what they had. An earthquake forced people from their homes and moved them to experiment with new housing constructions. Mining industries forced people from their farmlands and moved them to engage in political action. Extractive industries in the Amazon and government policies forced people from their traditional lands and moved them to reinvigorate their own cultural traditions. In all of these examples, people began thinking long-term instead of short-term. They learned to focus not so much on crisis response plans to displacement, but rather development plans and mitigation techniques for displacement. In this podcast series, we have talked about many forces that move us. But there's one powerful force we haven't touched on. It's a force that affects each of us and can move us anytime. It's hope. I want to speak about hope because I think right now, with our current political climate, hope as a force feels like it's in short supply. What gives us hope in the context of climate change, natural disasters, natural resource exploitation? It's a complicated question to answer. I know that when I think about it myself, I think, honestly, not much, not much gives me hope. But in an article written by Diego Arguedas Ortiz as part of the BBC, I'll post a link to the article on my website, he makes the important distinction between hope and optimism. As Matthew Gallagher, a psychologist who wrote the handbook on hope, writes, Optimism is a more general expectation that good things are going to happen, even if you don't know how they'll necessarily happen. Hope, meanwhile, has positive expectations about the future, but is driven by our capacity to identify goals and set strategies to achieve them. Hope is a force that can create movement. I think a lot of times when someone says, I'm hopeful or I'm optimistic, they're thinking of the situation outside of themselves, basing the future of climate change or of displacement or anything else on other people's actions, essentially on an outside force. But I think hope in reality has nothing to do with good news. Instead, it is an inside force that's profoundly linked with action, our own action and that of the people around us. I wish every person out there would find their own glacier. I fell in love with ice a long time ago, and it's hard to explain why, but I just did, and it's encouraged me to keep moving forward. And I feel often a great deal of sadness when I work with a lot of this ice. It's a motivating type of sadness, because I know that everything I'm working with is going to change in a way that is not natural to that thing to change. I keep working with ice, and I'm going to keep working with ice for my whole life. I don't need everybody else out there to be a glacier nut like I am. I don't need everybody out there to work with ice, but I need them to find their own glacier. And whether that glacier might be the forest that they live in, the river they want to tend, a valley 
anything in your own environment. More than anything else today, we need advocates for these environments. And that's what I think a lot about, and that's what I I try to focus a lot on because I feel like for a lot of people, there's so much going on in the environment that one of the most common psychological responses is to simply turn off. You cannot be responsible for forests and oceans and deserts and the whole planet. It's really, really, it's overwhelming. And so what I keep seeing and I keep thinking about is I wish people would find their own glacier and then go for it. If there is one thing to take away from this podcast, it's that whatever the reason for displacement is, the outcomes are often quite similar. Homelessness, landlessness, the loss of livelihoods and the connection to important cultural or religious spaces. And we need to think about how we as individuals, communities and governments are going to support this group of people. What is the glacial force that will move each of us? Because for the people on the front lines, the people facing displacement now, they can't even see hope on the horizon. When survival is your number one priority, the future you need to solve is today. Hope seems like a luxury. For those of us not yet living on this precipice, let's give a little hope to those who are. After all, human displacement, especially from climate change, is something that affects every one of us on the planet. It could be an incredibly uniting force. Lastly, to end this podcast, I'll leave you guys with a journal entry I made during my last day in Ecuador. So, it is my last day here in Quito before I leave to go back to the U.S. It's weird because when I thought about this moment, I kind of feel exactly the way I thought I would feel, which is just just sad (laughs) I've met so many beautiful people and everyone has been so generous to welcome me into their home and learn about their stories and be a part of everything and build community and really care really care for a lot of people and the best part about it is I feel valued I feel needed and it's just really hard to to leave people behind or to not know exactly when I'll see them again but I have a feeling I'll be back really soon I really just want to like stay in bed all day but it's a beautiful sunny day out and How can I not take advantage of the blue skies in my last day here to really soak it all in? Eat some good Ecuadorian food and say my last goodbyes. Yeah, I just, I feel really grateful for everything that I've experienced. The good times and the bad times, the tough times. (laughs) The moments of realization of 
what's actually going on here. <laughs> um, yeah. Items may have moved in flight. And thank you for choosing American Airlines. Por favor, permanezca sentado con el cinturón de seguridad abrochado hasta que la señal de cinturón de seguridad se apague y mantenga los pasillos libres de cualquier artículo de equipaje de mano. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to www.forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Sweet Tides by Latasha, Dreaming in 432 Hertz by Unicorn Heads, Lost in the Forest and It Happens by Douglas Maxwell and Media Rights Productions, Aeoli by Andrew Langdon, Pila Pala Paradise by Rachel Collier, Escape by Evan England, San Juaneando by Alex Alviar, and Sin Gritar by Sir Manique.